This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 42, Deuteronomy chapters 4 through 7. On this week's episode of Survivor... Miracles, wonders, 40 years in the desert, whoring after the Midianites at Baal Peor, plagues, purges, crowd-eating crevices, fire, the Jews have seen it all. And only those that clung to the laws and the Torah have survived, but even those need to be reminded of the commandments and schooled properly in the most proper of proper decorum and morality before entering the Promised Land. Moshe reminds the people of what went down at Sinai of the ten utterances, the tablets, the warnings about worshipping idols, and how, because of the people's foibles, he was not to be admitted into the land of Israel. And since we're speaking of Israel, Moshe warns of a time when future generations living well in Israel will forget the lessons of the present and run off to make idols and worship them. And with the heavens serving as witness, Moshe promises that God will smite those errant descendants. But... There is a recourse, repentance. For although God is quick to anger, he will also be compassionate and forgiving. Moshe continues describing the cities of refuge where individuals who kill by accident can flee from the victim's avengers. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. Never letting a good dramatic moment go to waste, chapter 5 brings us back to that moment at Sinai when God spoke to the people directly and the people were freaked out. So Moshe recounts how he intercedes and plays working telephone with the Jews reporting the word of God, otherwise known as the Ten Utterances. And the people, still sufficiently freaked out, tell Moshe that they are still freaked out. And having heard that, Moshe retells, God tells him to send the Jews back to their tents and that God will continue the discussion with Moshe privately. Don't you remember all this from Exodus? Come on! And so, chapter 6, Moshe continues, we are well into what Bible scholars call the second discourse, and Moshe lays it out with physical reminders of God's law, the mezuzah on the doorpost and the tefillin or phylacteries on your head and arm, and what will happen if you follow God's law, namely really good things. But there's also a lingering threat of what will happen if the Jews falter, and a potent reminder about why one should bother with these laws and regulations. Quote, Serfs were we to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Adonai took us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Adonai placed signs and portents, great and evil ones, on Egypt, on Pharaoh and all his house, before our eyes, and us he took out of there in order to bring us, to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And then there's the matter of the land itself, the where the Jews were to be brought after being brought out of Egypt, and how they were supposed to treat those people. In other words, badly. I believe the exact wording was, quote, you are not to show them mercy. And if the Jews keep the commandments, this showing no mercy will be the order of the day, despite all the odds and their stature and their walled cities and weapons. God will dislodge them all before you. And when God does, make sure not to worship their idols. So, there's a lot to talk about this week. Let's get to it. (laughs) 
about this particular point? Probably not. But what's the obsession with idolatry? I mean, I understand why a nation of God worshipers might have some issues with folks who don't worship God. It's a violation of the covenant, the promise of exclusivity. And besides, idolatry is the pursuit of nothingness. So, but why to obsess about it so much? Why to this extent? Do you know how many times this topic comes up in just this episode's portion of Deuteronomy? By my count, 14 times. And depending on how you count the 10 utterances, 22% of the actual commandments are dedicated to dissing idolatry. That's twice as much as murder or adultery. Now, Baal was the great weather god, a fan favorite in Syria-Palestine, and inevitably and deeply embedded in the agrarian economy. Even today, this part of the world is dependent on rain in the right time and in the right quantity. During the summer, there is no rain. Figs and grapes ripen in the dry, and grain is also harvested before it rains again. When all goes as it should, the land yields and the trees fruit, and the people thresh and pick, and, the, and they sow. But... There was, there was and continues to be an underlying fear about the rainfall, a worry that it would not be enough or not come in time, which back then gave rise to a plethora of rainmaking rites, which is the wheelhouse of Baal. Which explains why Baal was the popular tourist destination that it was for ancient Semites, and less so for the Egyptians and Mesopotamians, who, in contrast, depended on irrigation for bounty and prosperity. But this penchant for pagan practice does not explain why it was such a temptation. In other words, why did the Jews whore so unendingly after Baal? Again, we have to go back to the documentary hypothesis first and consider that perhaps this was not an obsession of Moshe's, but of the later writers of Deuteronomy. As I mentioned in the previous episode, there is a patina of congruity in Deuteronomy. The geographic details, the names of long-annihilated tribes, the giants, the legendary conquests... But the concerns placed in Moshe's mouth don't strike me necessarily as the concern of a person who has been wandering the desert for almost two generations with very little contact with other idol-worshipping peoples that would have predisposed the Jews to embrace idolatry. Take the Jews' Egyptian overlords, who enslaved them and murdered their male babies as a form of population control. They were idolaters, and really fancy idolaters. So perhaps for those folks who suffered from a touch of Stockholm Syndrome and or a heightened sense of punctuality, the embrace of the golden calf made sense, but those folks perished in a violent purge. And then there were the Amalekites, also idolaters, who attacked the Jews without provocation. Would any of the folks who were wounded or lost relatives in the melee or went out to fight and defeat Amalek want to embrace the gods of the Amalekites? Probably not. And then there was that funny business at Baal Peor, which probably involved eating sacrifices for dead and sacred orgies. But as Moshe also said, quote, but you, the ones clinging to Adonai, your God, are alive, all of you today. So the sample we're dealing with here are the true believers, the choir that Moshe is preaching to, the last men and women and children standing, the folks that directly witnessed the consequences of infidelity to God. So why the hectoring? Why the repetition? Unless Moshe here is reflecting on a concern from the time of Deuteronomy's writers, a time when Baal worship was a serious challenge to God worship, and especially when Baal worship was a lot more fun, which of course is a relative term, but not an insignificant one. 
While I was doing my research back in the old doctorate days into the odd food traditions and practices of Jews and other peoples, I came across an assertion by Marvin Harris about pork and the spread of Islam. Wherever pig raising was a central component of traditional farming, Harris asserts, Islam failed to win over substantial portions of the population. Thus, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Africa south of the Sahara, areas suited for pig raising, proved to be the outer limits of the spread of Islam. This assertion has since been challenged by anthropologists and cultural critics. And before I get into that, and which I actually won't, to the larger point, which lay buried under the ensuing academic paperage. There are things that people will do for religion and things to which they will respond with. Oh, hell no! And I'm talking about folks doing things they don't normally want to do, things that are inconvenient, things that are a hassle, things that can be painful. But because of their deeply held convictions, they do it and do it with a beatific smile like circumcision, or chanting in Sanskrit, or denying gay couples access to baked goods. But what if the formula was flipped? What if the, the case where folks would be called upon to do things that would be considered, oh, I don't know... Excellent! It wouldn't be hard to imagine people lining up around the block. Kind of like when a new Apple product comes out. Or kind of like what would happen if someone switched the Vatican with Vegas and the Bellagio became a site of religious pilgrimage and devotion, which would give a whole new meaning to that infamous tagline, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Could you imagine what Western civilization would look like if worship was more about party than piety? We can leave that thought exercise for another time. I guess what I'm really talking about here is moral panic. Stanley Cohen, in his 1972 work, Folk Devils and Moral Panics, coined the term moral panic, defining it as a sporadic episode where folks worry about the values and principles which society upholds, which may be in jeopardy. Cohen focuses on the mass media's role in catalyzing these episodes and amplifying them. His original interest was youth culture and how old farts perpetually worry that young people will ruin society. You kids, get off my lawn. In every generation, young people, be they mods, hippies, yippies, slackers, or millennials, become associated with certain types of degenerate behaviors like football hooliganism, pot smoking, vandalism, contraception use, video gaming, beard growing, sexting, political activism, or underemployment. Once the 24-hour news cycle gets their hands on it, it becomes rich fodder for conservative concern trolling. But here's the thing, if you go back and check the recent spate of moral panics, and I'm not talking about the dozen or so generated in the past week to frighten and chasten, if you go back decades to say like the 1950s, you will find that these scolds and conservatives and trolls were right. Viva Frederick Wertham! Rock music did lead to integration. Comic books did lead to depravity. But here's the thing. The much-decried wild and wanton behavior that would bring about societal ruin really didn't deliver. Although rock music did lead to integration, and reading Batman comics did not make readers gay, it did make Batman an attractive role model for closeted kids. None of it resulted in society's general collapse. Well, maybe for that particular vision of society. The stuffy, prissy, killjoy, no-fun-having society. It definitely fell to the wayside. Or perhaps never had a chance to really root itself because the kids just want to be free, man. Hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? 
by the way, Marlon Brando would be 90 if he was alive today. Think of it as behavioral Gresham's Law, with so-called naughtiness always driving out, or at least jostling, so-called proper good behavior. And it was true that in the 50s with Brando's Johnny, and the 60s with Berger from Hare, and the 70s with Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back, Cotter, and the 80s with Joe from Facts of Life, and the 90s with Dylan McKay from Beverly Hills 90210, and the aughts with Stewie from Family Guy, and so on and so on and so on. So when I consider the biblical scolds who headed out for Baal, I, I'm, I'm nonplussed. Yes, I share their worry. I am a parent now. I've crossed over to the other side, but I'm not that old or, or that myopic that I forgot how much fun ball worshipping, I mean, listening to loud gangster rap or espousing progressive political views really are, uh, I mean, were. And considering how vehement and persistent Moshe's scolding was and how religious leaders continue to harp on Baal for centuries... You gotta believe that despite all the admonitions, folks were hitting that weekly, monthly, and yearly. And nothing terrible happened. It's not like any temples were destroyed or kingdoms despoiled or whole peoples exiled or anything. As always, you can leave a comment, a question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. And, and while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 43 of the Book of Deuteronomy, chapters 8 through 11. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?